Welcome to the finale episode of season one of So Hot Right Now. I'm Lucy Siegel. And I'm Tom Mustill. And this week we have something a bit different and a bit special. It's yes. the chance for... Oh, yes. Yes, we do. Yes, yes, just, we do. Just, uh, that was just yeah. an affirmative to Hell keep yeah. it going. Thank you. So we're going to do something a bit different. It's a chance for us to pass the mic to the next generation of nature and climate storytellers. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. In February, Tom and I were asked to go to Falmouth to give some talks to the students at an amazing course at the university there, Marine and Natural History Photography. I want to give a shout out to Anna Roberts, who runs, who ran this symposium. It was amazing. I mean, I wish I'd done this course. I, um, it's focused at people who take photos and make videos like around the sea. But a lot of the people there were just interested in wildlife and, and nature and climate in general. Um, and I wish I was Anna. You wish you were Anna. <laughs> yeah, she's just really cool. And also she, she is, she's so caring of the mm. students. Anyway, did you, did you have of... a horrible student experience? Who was, who was, what was your course at uni? Oh, um, I did English and drama at Queen Mary in Westfield on the Mile End Road. No, I, I didn't well. have a horrible experience. Do you know the Mile End Road? I live not too far off. There is uh, an ancient Jewish cemetery within that university. Yes, and let me tell yeah. you about it, because they were building the new um, theatre at the time, and the builders and the specifiers went in without asking for permission from the Jewish population in that area, and they started to dig up the cemetery. Oh, my God. And this caused a huge outcry. And then um, elders from that community came and literally moved the bones, like passed them between themselves in a chain. So wow. as you walked to lectures, that is what you would see. It, wow. was, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary kind of, um, well, lesson in many, many things. Wow. Yeah, I remember that really, really clearly. That's one of my clearer memories of three years of English and drama at Queen Mary in Westfield. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yeah. A long way from Falmouth. Um, a long way from Falmouth, yes. But um, That is an amazing story. Um, yeah, and now I think about it as so visual, like I can remember. Yeah, I can, I can see it. it. I can see it in your eyes, you re like revisiting it. Yeah, and I also was didn't connect with it at the time because I was 17 when I went to university. And Whoa. if you think I'm an idiot now... Well, <laughs> no one thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite. Um, and also, I am uh, from uh, a small town in the West Country. Well, I'm from many places, but I'd come from the West Country. So I didn't really have that much experience of different communities growing wow. up. Wow. Yeah. Where I grew up, it was more like Falmouth, actually. I went to that for camp uh, to the Queen Mary campus to a conference on the overlap between robots humans and animals and the future of technology and how it affects human robot futures and how they affect humans and animals anyway sorry this is extreme and Natalie's twiddling her hair which is the sign for 
<laughs> move back to the episode. Um, so move Falmouth. Move back to the current century. So we were extremely excited to go to Falmouth, not only because there's this amazing course of all these really engaged young people there, but also it was by the sea. And uh, we love the sea, uh, both Lucy and myself. And it was a chance. And Falmouth. Mm. Sorry, just just now I'm on a history tangent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Falmouth is basically where they bought the first cable in for, not for the internet. What was the thing before the internet? Telecommunications. Go, go Ape. Go Ape? Go Ape. Go Ape. The first. <laughs> is that where they, cables. is that, is that like an activity centre? It's an activity, center. yeah. Yeah. The first, the first, My little cousins um, like that. Um, not not go eight. No, they bought the the first telecommunications cable into Falmouth. Whoa! Yeah, so it was. It's been a it's been a hub for communication for a very very long time. In fact, the Falmouth Packet, which was the wow. newspaper of record record in Falmouth, was like the pivotal paper because the steam ships would bring it over from across the Atlantic. So it has been America. a frontier of communication for a long time. Totally, totally. Right. You can tell I used to work on the one show, can't you? It's brilliant. I think you, I think you should have a history podcast as well. Yeah, Dan Snow, watch out. <laughs> yeah, watch out. Um, anyway. So we, were, we went down there because uh, to contribute to a sort of symposium of different people whose job it was to tell stories about nature and climate. Can I clarify to... something? Yes. You were invited and I gatecrashed. That's true. Is, is the truth of the matter. But you were a fantastic gatecrasher and Lucy mm. also. Uh, yeah, it was excellent. It was really good. Uh, so I was invited to take part in a symposium and Lucy gatecrashed with me. Lucy was my, uh, what's it, roadie, would you say? Or yeah. like my, pl- my plus one. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, we, and so we were there ostensibly to try and share our, our hard-earned wisdom with... Uh, these young people who all want to tell stories about the natural world and the sea, but we were much more interested in them um, because they were about to head out into the world uh, as storytellers in a time of climate change and ecological catastrophe. And we wanted to know what they felt, uh, what they were worried about and what they wanted, what they needed to be able to do their, uh, the jobs that they saw ahead of them. So we asked them. So we them. asked them. <laughs> it was very cold, but it was quite sunny and there was um, a, a sort of motion that was suggested that we would go to the local beach and that some people would swim. Yeah, this is the bit where Lucy, some people would swim. Oh, wait, not me. Sorry. have you got a new dog? Have you got a Rupert? new dog? No, I'm looking after two amazing dogs called Rupert and Tiny. Uh, so, we were, so we went down to this beach, February, bright sunlight, but no warmth in the sun whatsoever. And um, a few of the group decided... About 30. About About 30. Okay, everyone apart from me and Natalie (laughs) decided that they were going to go into the water. And I'd like to say, um, give a huge apology to the owner of the cafe, who was quite distressed by the fact that everyone took off their clothes um, on his veranda and left their clothes there. But before we all uh, ran into the sea, we had a chat. We are on a beach, Gilly Beach, in Falmouth, and I'm here with three of the brightest stars from Falmouth University. Yeah, marine and natural history photography. So I'm Georgia, 
I'm Tom. Uh, and I'm Kaylon. And I'm also Tom. Um, but I'm not on the course. I'm just like, <laughs> what am I? I'm a <laughs> presenter of this podcast, like Lucy. So this is essentially your office. Why have you taken this course in your life? I mean, this course of action, Georgia. Um, I think for me, it's um, the outdoors has always been like a really integral part of my life. Um, and this course itself, I had seen for a couple of years and kept coming back to. Um, and just, yeah, the whole, it's, it's what I love, it's what I want to do. I took about six, seven years out before I didn't come straight from school or anything. So it's a passion that's really built up over time. Yeah, and just realised it's exactly what I want to do. So. What did you do in those six, seven years? Um, did a bit of travelling, like everyone, um, and worked seasonal jobs with children. So you have, this has always been your ambition to do this. Is it like a vocation? Yeah, I don't think I realised it's what I always wanted to do. It's always been a hobby and a love of mine and then sort of realised I could turn it into a career. And now I'm trying. So, <laughs> so what do you want to do? The dream would be to work in production in television. Uh, that's something I definitely aspire to, but I just think educating people and helping, helping make a difference. <laughs> You don't have to be embarrassed about wanting to make a difference, yeah. <laughs> make a posi- yeah, making a positive difference and trying to share that passion that I have for the environment and the ocean with other people. Do you feel that the sea and issues around the sea get as much attention as the stuff on the land? Um, Kaylin, right? Uh, oh, so I'm Kaylon. I don't think the sea gets as much coverage as the land. And I think that when the sea does get coverage, it's, it's that like very natural history... Like it's all about the wonderful world under the sea and yes there's been documentaries like Chasing Coral and stuff like that but I don't think there's that much content about what the problems around the ocean actually are and I think that it's important that people understand that what the actual problems are in order to be able to get excited about the potential solutions so I feel like there's this kind of fear around being too problem-based, which is legit, and obviously, you know, we don't want to cause mass panic and everything like that, but there needs to be enough of it so that people can actually grasp what it is that's going wrong so that they can then get excited about what it is we can do to change it. So we do need to create some urgency, however, because we're running out of time to address the problem. So how have you sort of come up with any ways of using filmmaking well your work how do you do that how do you try and show the problems in a way that motivates people to act what I would like to do is uh, do it through the lens of like the personal human stories so there's a lot of people on the ground that are working you can talk about the problem through the solution as well there's a lot of people who are doing sort of dedicating their like for example with underwater you've got um oh what's his name I think he's another Tom uh, no Brent I'm talking about a 3D un- underwater 3D ocean farming, um, and uh, that's farming kelp. It's such a great, like, it draws down carbon at such an efficient rate that the South Korean government, uh, they've done a five-year pilot study where they're building like a, a kelp belt around the country to draw carbon out of the water column. So you can tell that story of the ocean being overloaded with carbon through the story of someone like Brent who is a lone man doing 3D ocean farming and he's like transformed his life 
people can connect to that human story at the same time as being told about the problems while being served the solutions in a really inspiring way. So I'd like to do stuff like that, I think. Um, so I'm Tom. I'm also on Marine and Natural History Photography. And my area of interest is more to do with people. So the, the stories I tell, or try to tell at least, I um, aim to make them quite personal and just document everyday people. So the, the project that I'm currently working on, for example, um, is a short film based on the mental health benefits of being in the sea. So I've literally just reached out to anyone that was interested that had any kind of mental difficulties, trouble with well-being, that has used the sea to source themselves a form of happiness. And I want it to be very raw, so tell, tell the story exactly how they want it told from their perspective so that I'm not influencing anything. So it's, um, it's still in the works at the moment, so it's not quite fully fleshed out yet, but I'm basically just getting them to take me wherever they go and just sit the camera down and chat and just see what happens. How does it feel like it's going, that project? Does it feel like it's going well? It does, yeah. It, it definitely feels like it's it's has the potential to become something very powerful if I do it right. Even people that have been through the same things will all have a different story of their journey, but it's really amazing to see that there's such a shared kind of release, I guess, that the, the sea, you know, it reaches out to everyone down here. Like, I, everyone at this uni has got some kind of resonance with the sea. I think that's why we're all here. Well, you spend a lot of time down here, out here. Just describe what we're what we're seeing here so it's it's currently it's a little bit gray there's a there's a lovely cornish mizzle as we call it <laughs> so the kind of mist drizzle that's sitting over the beach and you've got i don't know what's that maybe a couple of two foot waves rolling in and a lot of dogs playing on the beach there's always dogs on this beach it's great fun there's always people on this beach you know even in weather like this which you wouldn't exactly say is the best weather in the world you've still got plenty of people on the beach you've got someone just over there actually with a metal detector digging up something he's looks like he's having a good time the people that live here have also got the same kind of connection do you think it's very challenging that because so few stories are told about the oceans and the people who live near them and yet they're feeling the brunt of climate change should i wait for the dogs to stop oh there's some nice dogs having an altercation there um but uh what I wonder about is like you've got this double-headed thing, which is like both that oceans aren't really talked about as much as land issues, and the people who live around them aren't talked about as much as people who live like further inland. And you also have the thing that climate change is affecting the oceans much faster. They're warming faster. The fish uh, that live in them are moving faster, and those changes are really important in affecting things on the land. Like this makes me feel like you've got quite a big responsibility, you guys. But also, this course hasn't been around for long, and it's very encouraging that like storytellers like you guys are being given tools to report on this. Does that excite you? Yeah, definitely, definitely exciting. It, it does feel um, there's times when it feels like it's quite a big responsibility, and it can be quite stressful. But again, it's it's so exciting, and it's such an amazing opportunity to be able to have that passion and an outlet to share it. Um, yeah, for me, talking about communities that aren't near the sea, I think it's really important to have that outreach um, further inland. Kaylon, what do you think that storytellers, media, the whole industry, what do you think that we've got wrong up to now? <laughs> Lucy specifically. Lucy specifically. I've got a lot wrong. You don't want to start on me. 
got wrong. I think there's a, I do feel like there's a underestimation of the public's, the public's interest and the public's ability to understand and like, I feel like we're always being told, yeah, you know, people want this, people want to see this, people don't want to see this, people are interested in this, oh no, no one's going to be interested in that. But how can we really know what people are interested in? If you're showing someone something new, they're not going to know they're interested in it until they've seen it. It kind of becomes a bit of an echo chamber, doesn't it? And I think that, like, you know, what, the Blue Planet 2, there was like, what, two minutes of plastic? It was like two minutes in that... 14, across the series, But in that sequence was only a couple of minutes, yeah. yeah. in the first sequence was a couple of minutes. And then the UK is banging on about plastic for a year, and it's changed everything. And that's, I feel like the public can take more than they're being given credit for. And I think that... So it's sort of patronising, do you think, a lot of it? The attitude towards what the public can handle and whether they can deal with the reality of the problems. I think it can be patronising, yeah. And I think there's space to be a bit more, like, bold, you know. And especially in this... We're in a crisis when we've got this sort of 10-year period. And maybe it's not so much about what people want, but maybe about what people need, you know. And that change of mindset from, like, short-term profit... Oh, but we don't want to lose ratings... I mean, I know you can't lose ratings because then you lose the viewers, but yeah, I don't know. Well, you might not need to be so ratings focused if your income comes from somewhere else. So, you know, BBC, for example, do you think there should be more flexibility? Do you think that there should be more different metrics for measuring the success of a programme rather than just like whether it's really popular? Yeah, maybe. I think maybe there can be a lag in how popular things are as well, you know, because when something's novel, a few people are interested in it. Maybe you, know, maybe you get this, like, drop in ratings, maybe, but then as more and more people, like, things grow, and then more and more people start talking about it, and then it maybe becomes popular. But then is it incumbent on filmmakers not to care about ratings and push back against that metric? I think there needs to be a balance. Like, I think that, you know, maybe with the internet, the, the fact that you can have all this content that you can't really have on telly, on the internet, can then kind of generate the, the popularity of maybe unpopular subjects that can then, then the telly can sort of like take it on. It was going back a little bit actually um, to, the, to the first point you made about what TV might be getting wrong at the moment. And I think actually the, the Blue Planet 2 thing is, is quite a good example for that. So when David Attenborough is speaking about the plastic, you can tell he's very passionate. Like, you can feel the passion. You can tell he's probably had a decent part in writing what he's saying as well. Whereas you see a lot of, like, the, the mainstream short-form bits of video that are coming out on, on things like, um, you know, the one show. Like, like you were talking about yesterday, there were some things that you showed us where you were, like, telling us how you weren't exactly happy with the script in all places. And you can, you know, there's nothing wrong with, like having being given a script but if you're not passionate about it then people aren't going to get behind your ideas I think so I think allowing that kind of freedom of people to express themselves and express their passions in what they're saying specifically for presenters I would say if this is important is definitely going to help make people care more because if they do you think presenters need more power yeah definitely I definitely do because I feel like if you're in, a, in the role of presenting you're going to know about your topic. You're going to be passionate about your topic and you're going to want to be there in front of the camera. You wouldn't do it otherwise, really. Well, my, my point was yesterday was that um, I'm very passionate about the subject, but I didn't feel that I was able to say what I wanted to yeah. say because the format was too rigid. Yeah. 
So does it go back to making different formats and different ways of doing things? Because the thing is that you guys could all fall into line and we could meet you in three years' time and you're all making programmes for the formats that are out there at the moment. You're shaking your head, Kayla. <laughs> no, we're going to be making new stuff with new formats that's going to be novel and exciting and groundbreaking. I don't know. I feel like there needs to be, like refreshing kind of change up of everything in culture. So would you say that you're more motivated by doing that, by achieving an impact with your work, than just having a career in this area? Definitely. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm, well, it would be incredible to have a really strong career in this. It's not like, that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I know I love this and I know this is the area that I want to be able to have an influence on and make a difference in. The reality of it, though, is, yeah. you know, people want stuff and they need stuff and they want to get a mortgage and they want regular work. And you're shaking your head again, <laughs> Kayla. I don't want any of those things. I don't want, I do, I, I want to find a way to not have to constantly need regular work. I need to find a way out of that, you know. You're sounding like an artist. And that's what I was before I went into anything to do with um, photography or film. I was a painter for a long time, and I moved to I, I moved to Berlin so that I could pay less. I could have a I could have more time. Because in this country, you have to work eight days a week just to pay rent on a minimum wage, you know, and you don't have time to do anything. So I moved to Berlin and lived there for four and a half years so that I could paint. And that's why Berlin's full of creatives because you can work three days a week and still manage to be able to go out and eat dinner out but that's not something you can do in this country so I need to find a way to not have to do that so that I can have creative freedom and do the things that are meaningful to me you know I think that kind of cyclical process is something that we're all stuck in a bit of a system at the moment so there's the expectation that you've got to do this one thing for the next thing for the next thing and that money is power and this kind of well, you're basically talking about a capitalist mindset that everyone's in, and it, it, it's this kind of bubble that no one's really able to break away from at the moment. I mean, I have no idea how you go about this, and it's, it's something that XR talks about a lot, breaking away from the, the capitalist mindset, but I feel like if there's a way of doing that, even just a little bit, it gives everyone just a bit more freedom in what they're doing, I guess. It, it, you know, it would really empower our kind of creative way of thinking, like you're saying, about not having to think about locking down a job every day of the week we could just take a step back and go how can I make a change to the world without going how can I get the money so that I can make a change to the world I think it's well it's obviously like an, I, it's a dream to have but I think it's about putting conservation before that convenience and, and stop thinking about the self without getting too psychological about it but yeah thinking about what is actually really important stripping it all back and looking at uh, is it a community in I think society has a role to play too, like in our, like our state can support things it thinks are valuable, our state can support artists, our state can support people who are trying to tell like, stories to other people that are valuable to those people to know, that, that they need to hear. Um, I don't think it's crazy to imagine like, a country which supports people trying to do the work that you're doing and it's frustrating to hear that you might have to like give up you know, or consider not being paid or having the security of, of work to do to do this stuff but it's very encouraging that you want to do it anyway that is that is great but I don't it shouldn't be necessary can I ask you guys a different question what is the one thing 
you've seen that you rate? Who's your hero and what, what's the thing that they've done in the last year? So the people listening, because you've, you've spent years looking at all the things people have done in communicating the sea and its issues. What's the best or the one that comes first to mind? I like books. That's okay. Is that all right? Yeah. My favourite book that I read this year was Wilding by Isabella Tree. I think that's the same for a lot of people probably. Uh, it, it made me realise the power of like rewilding, the power of nature to like spontaneously regenerate. And that I found that so like inspiring and hopeful and really motivating as well. It was a cattle farm. It was a dairy farm, right, at Nep, so in, in south... East Sussex. East Sussex. Yeah, yeah. Sussex. West one, of the, Sussex. one of the Sussexes. Sussex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it, they were ran, running into financial problems and they decided to uh, let go of the dairy farm and allow the land to, to, to rewild. And that was, that was first a process of just letting go, which was also very difficult. Uh, and then sort of bringing in like grazers and things that would have been in that ecosystem. And then just watching species that are on the brink of extinction in the UK sort of flock in in abundance, in an abundance that we don't see anywhere else in the country, in this tiny little spot of land. Um, so yeah, I find that really exciting. That makes me want to read that book. Your description makes me want to read that book. Do you think that, so that's a land story, right, of rewilding, but like almost all of the UK's coastline is unprotected and also intensively farmed or dredged or used. What about sea wild? Like, do you think that's something that we should be looking at as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a, definitely, there's a, they've just got a strip of the East Sussex uh, coastline. Uh, they've managed to get policy to ban dredging and they're going to try and rewild the kelp forest there which has been stripped away since the 80s um, and that's something that's just uh, that's something I think would be really amazing to, to document over a long period of time and show people how that abundance can come back I want to make that I want to make that yeah, sounds great can I can I recommend two things no, two very one, different one, things one okay well in, so this is actually going back a little while actually, um, I came across the work of a guy called Alan Watts, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, um, he's a British philosopher that went out and spent a lot of time in the East learning about Buddhism, Taoism, all sorts of spirituality um, and he came back with the sole purpose to teach these Eastern teachings to a Western audience and just trying to kind of emphasize the stark difference in the way the Western world is now functioning and how it's actually just making us all unhappy, you know? He talks about, kind of as I mentioned before actually, about this next step process. So you do one thing to the next thing to the next thing and you're just stuck in a loop of only ever doing something because of the thing that comes after it, never being in the moment of something. And that just really resonated with me and it, it's kind of woven a lot of spiritual thinking into my work as well as just um, going you know here's the sea it's like what is our spiritual connection to the sea and why does it make us feel good like so that's had a, a big impact on my work and then a big impact on me personally so I I won't do I won't do two I'll be quick they're breaking your format so I did I was up in um, London for the October Rebellion just I went to go there for one day to just take photos for a project I was doing um, and I stayed for eight because it was a culture that I'd never experienced before and everyone was so together and so driven to, to fight for what they believed in and just the culture of the people there and just everyone was so lovely 
and it was just so inspiring to see that kind of just attitude of people that a common cause of, of climate breakdown is just pulling everyone together to really act in a really beautiful way. Uh, the one that's inspired me in the last year is a lovely lady called Cal Major that you've heard of her. Um, she's epic. She did this incredible journey from she paddleboarded from Cornwall up to Land's End. Um, no, sorry, John O'Groats. Um, just on her own, paddled the whole way up, and it was. Um, she's just incredibly inspiring, and she just has such an optimistic attitude towards this whole plastic crisis. That's like her focus. Um, so Vitamin C is her film, so that was what I would recommend to everyone to watch. And she, uh, I went to a talk with her last year and she just has this amazing optimistic attitude which I think while we are in a crisis, I think we all need to have, I can't remember who said it yesterday, but we have to have that blind faith and hope to be able to get through because otherwise it's just way too heavy and I think we're not going to get anywhere. So yeah, optimism. She gave me a paddle board, but I can't use it because I keep falling off it <laughs> in the Thames. And on that note, shall we get in the sea? Yeah. yeah? Lucy, are you going to get in the sea? Notice the absence of my whoop of joy. We've also got how many more people? Like about 15 other people from the course who are all going to come have a plunge. Yeah. I'll, I'll run in after you. You go in first. Yeah. was a really nice swim um but i had to jump on the train back to london afterwards and uh even though i was rubbing my toes uh, as much as i could they were still yellow and the blood hadn't returned to them uh for at least three three hours later but it was worth it um it was it was very invigorating uh, yeah, because you weren't wearing wetsuits or no, dry suits no that's cheating that's cheating um, yeah, that was. I was a bit worried about you actually, because that's um, you know when hypothermia sets in. I've just got. I think I've got a problem with my toes, where if they get cold, I've just my body just sucks all of the blood into the middle of it. So I feel absolutely fine, but it's really creepy, isn't it, when you haven't got any circulation in your feet? And when I go surfing, it's a big problem because you need to be able to feel your feet to surf. But when your feet go all dead and they just feel like sort of meat lumps on the ed end of your legs. Oh, you just, you just fall, lumps. you just fall off. You, you pop up, and you haven't realised they've gone dead. You should um, get some of those shoes. I have them. I've got some really nice booties. But the problem is, if you then have a pee in your wetsuit, they fill up with pee, and right. everyone pees in their wetsuit. I'm wet going suit. to just pretend. No, they don't. And I'm going to pretend uh, that that didn't there, happen. Lucy, there are two kinds of people. Um, there are the people who pee in their wetsuits, and there are the people who pretend they don't pee in their wetsuits. <laughs> So before all of the, before we had this chat and before we ran into the sea, we uh, had this lecture theatre full of hundreds of students. Um, and 
they just spent two days listening to some really interesting people talk about their jobs and how they took photos underwater or uh, got communities together or um, talked about uh, how they found their way in their jobs uh, communicating uh, nature and climate and especially issues to do with the sea. So to start with, we had a more in-depth chat with some of um, the students who were studying uh, nature and climate photography and filmmaking. And then we went broader, so we threw it out to the audience. And we're going to come in here and you're going to hear the point at which we invite the whole audience to take part. What do you need? What, what would you like? Like, what, what help do you need with the challenges that you can see? Tell us, what do you need? It's like more funding opportunities, probably. Mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't personally looked into lots of funding opportunities myself, but um, it seems that our generation is quite under stress from like, financial issues and stuff. Yeah, it's hard enough, so That's right? a big limiting factor yeah. in, in the work we want to go and do afterwards. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you want to do? Um, it's still like kind of grasping with it. Um, I want to go to next year for my final major project. I want to go to the Falklands Islands um, and explore global anthropogenic change on on those islands, um, using the Falklands Islands as a microcosm for it. So there's plastic pollution, there's uh, modern day slavery, there's there's a, a whole whole load of issues which are happening there and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we need funds for people to pursue yeah, the stories. Yeah, more yeah. funding opportunities, especially for people at your stage in their career. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Next question. I mean, next next demand. <laughs> Be demanding. Yeah. Um, I think we need more clarity and context when we make films because a lot of the time it's focused on one very, very specific narrative and very cherry-picking stories that support that narrative. So when you go away from the documentary and you look at like you know the reviews and what people are saying, you often find, actually, hang on a second. This is clearly very biased in one opinion, so it makes it very difficult to trust like the in intention of a documentary. So having more context as to why the studies rather than just a couple, I feel like it will be quite important in getting um, consumers to like understand that it's a genuine thing. So in the storytelling landscape, you feel that views are very polarised and that's not helpful because it, it means that you don't trust the storyteller because they've cherry-picked their, yeah. their storyline? Yeah. And that, and that, you see yourself going into that landscape and that being not, you'd rather work in somewhere more nuanced? I guess so. Just, I just think it's just important to make sure that like everything is, rather than just trying to go for one single narrative, that it's like a full view of things, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think that speaks a lot to the commissioning processes that we have at the moment, because they are, because of the way the structure works, they're inclined to well, cherry pick, as you yeah. as you put it, it's a really good phrase to use. Hello. Um, well, historically, um, environmental causes have been sort of put forward by individuals or small groups, small communities. Um, now, I feel like our entire generation is being expected to mark their life to protect the future, and I just feel like the pressure for this generation. It's quite heavy, so less pressure, I'd say. Less pressure? <laughs> what? What would, what would help make it less pressure? Um, maybe more put into protection of mental health, because if, we're being, if we are expected to take this pressure, then we need some kind of relief uh, from eco-anxiety in some way. Mm-hmm. 
I had a, I had a thought about eco anxiety recently because I, I don't feel it very much, even though I know all of this horrible stuff. And I, my instinct is that I feel it less because I get to do a job where I'm doing something about it. And I wonder if that's why many young people who aren't in the workplace necessarily yet might feel because they have this disconnect of seeing this awful thing that they know is so like dreadful, seeing many people not take action and feeling impotent. And I just wonder if maybe actually getting, I, I don't feel it as much, but I, I wonder if, <laughs> but I wonder if also it's just there's a satisfaction to actually doing something about it. I don't helps. think we use the phrase wrong in the head anymore, but yes. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's fine. What's your name? Alex. Alex, so just, just to go back to what you were saying, was that something you were aware of coming in to do the course? You've, you've sort of chosen an industry on the front line, haven't you? When I got uh, initial interest into wildlife photography, I just liked taking photos of birds. <laughs> you know, it's, it wasn't until I fell down this rabbit hole that I immersed myself in all of this, like, not dread, but, yeah, like, pressure, I think, is just the only way to explain it. So, yeah, it's definitely from becoming part of this sort of social circle that I've started to experience this. And how has your work changed? Um... I find myself focusing less on the photography and more on trying to make an impactful story. Um, yeah, just by seeking the stories first. So I think I spend less time actually enjoying taking photos and more time just desperately trying to do the right thing. And how do you feel about <coughs> that? I feel good because, like you said, the more that I do, the more that I'm relieved. But uh, maybe it's just personal, but sometimes it feels like it's, it's never enough, so we need to always be doing more. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Like what we've been doing has been seen as quite sort of wishy-washy for a long time, not serious, sort of with oh, the greenies, you know, or just nice animal-y stuff. But it is really traumatising to report on it. Um, and like you said, it can, you can feel really alone. Um, yeah, so I think, I think we all do face that. OK, anyone else? OK, yes, thank you. This one's a, a little bit more general, but I think there needs to be a shift in, in the general media and what they're willing to portray on the climate emergency. Because um, I find a lot when we, we think about creating content to portray what's going on, you kind of get pigeonholed from the get-go on what you can and can't put out on mainstream media, especially specific broadcast companies because of what they might limit based on um, political, uh, what they think might be political. Um, but I think we're at a point now where the climate emergency is almost surpassing uh, this kind of political standpoint, and it should be something we're trying to get to more people to get them more, uh, more invested. Can you unwrap that a little bit? Can you give us an example? Yeah, so, well, this morning we were talking about how our planet was, um, was put out on Netflix, and they were allowed to put a lot more in terms of what's, what's really happening and, and weave this message of, of the devastation that's going on in the world uh, that they may not have been able to put on a platform like the BBC, for example. So I feel like especially with the reach of the BBC, if they were a little bit more willing to stretch the boundaries of what they're willing to show, 
it could actually have a really positive knock-on effect for awareness in, in a more general public. I would say that's very valid. I think it's a very valid point of view. I, I'd say also, it does feel like that's kind of changing. Did you guys watch Seven Worlds recently? Yeah. Mm. Did you notice how like there was, I'd even say maybe more than in our planet about, about climate change, about species, about systemic problems and causes linking the issues that they face? And that's, that's another big blue chip series and it feels like a thread that's running through. I saw that and it gave me a lot of hope that maybe gears were shifting in that way. And institutions take a long time to change. So there was effectively a moratorium on climate for over a decade, a effectively. So like, a, like nobody really dealt with it in some media companies. And because of the rules on ob objectivity, I mean, you'll know this, when somebody was talking about climate, then they would bring on a denier or skeptic, we call them deniers now, and the balance would be somewhere in the middle. That was the theory, but of course that's not the, cent the pivot of that argument. That's a false balance. And it took a long time with the internal codes of how journalism and broadcast works, which are there for a reason and importance to a degree. It took a long time to have that debate and change those codes. For me personally, and I can't speak for the BBC because I'm just a freelancer who sometimes works there, you could hear the chanting of Extinction Rebellion from NBH, New Broadcasting House. And I think at that point, something changed dramatically, dramatically. And then I almost noticed it the next day. I was listening to the Today programme, the morning programme on BBC Radio 4, and I heard a climate protester interviewed, and I was waiting for the false balance. I was waiting for the other side of the argument, and it never came. And I was like, you know, deep breath, we've moved past that point. And I assume, I don't know about the commissioning structure for um, natural history, but I assume that it takes a while for those commissions to start to come through. I think there's also a level which is just down to the individual people working on the programmes. I think it can be tempting to think that there's some sort of master plan across these big organisations. I think sometimes the, the execs on the programmes just didn't care that much, you know, about it. And other execs have come through who do. And the ones who did care about it maybe didn't feel they could speak up and really push for those stories. And so I'm not sure, I think there's, a, there's also a change within the people there and personnel are moving on and younger people are moving into teams and they care about this more. And I think that's happening as well. That's really true. So on the shows that I work on, we have a very young team who are, you know, uh, researchers and APs and all the rest of it. And they're the ones who are pushing for more coverage of climate in particular. They're my allies because everyone else just thinks I'm the sort of house weirdo that talks about green issues. Anyway, how are we doing for time? Five minutes Oh, left. who wants to tell us what they need? Maybe someone with loads of money and opportunities will listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> Izzy. It can be better. We can do better. Um, I think if you're not involved in the climate or environmental movement or you don't have the capacity to be, I think that's okay. And you don't have to be just as long as you're aware. And I think those people who have the privilege to need to step up. <laughs> And yeah, it can be better. I feel like this can't be it. This can't be the end. This can't be the way that humans are remembered by all the animals. <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I struggle a lot with having hope. I fluctuate between being super positive that there's loads of great things happening in the world and feeling like 
holy shit, it's all going to shit. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I think it can get better and we can do better and people need to step up. This but can't okay be the way. Can't. This can't be the way that humans are remembered by the animals. It's my favourite thing. It's so funny because you remember the dark bit, and I'm like, there, there can be hope. That's the bit that I remember. No, but yeah. I remember. Like, I'm thinking of it like a cartoon or something. While those animals are like sitting around remembering yeah, humans. Remember the humans. Yeah. Oh. They were so awful. So bad at communication. <laughs> I also think like focus on the UK as well for a lot of it. I feel like. I don't know, people always veer off to, like, we need to fix this country, we need to fix that country, but, like, the UK is a huge culprit, and I think there's so many stories here to tell on making things better and doing things better, and, like, grassroots communities in the UK are doing some epic things, and I think, yeah, stay local, stay grassroots. Mm -hmm. Stay cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, That's our ending sentiment. Are you happy with that? I don't know. <laughs> stay local. Stay grassroots. Stay cool. I just wanted to try and say it out loud. Stay local. Stay grassroots. Stay cool. Does it work the other way around? Stay cool, stay grassroots, stay local. I have noticed Izzy and some of the guys that we met actually, when they're posting on social media, they do use this to wind each other up. <laughs> <laughs> do, you do, you, do you think um, it's been ruined? Because this was recorded before the uh, barrage of three beat uh, information things from the government that we've been having during the COVID crisis. Oh, like yeah, like stay alert. Stay alert. I'm very, Drive are to you Durham. alert right now? I've, I'm still quite alert. Uh, have you, are you still alert? I'm alert to many things. Um, I don't know if I'm alert to COVID advice still. Well, that's the end of our, of our series. Wow, I can't believe it. It is. It's a well, lot to take in. It is. I mean, I was just I was just trying to think about this today because I'm not sure I totally believe it. The whole we've made this. We started just before this pandemic and we've been recording it all the way through. And I think I've spoken to Lucy and Natalie, our producer, more than anybody else in my life, apart from my wife for the last five months. And I've had more arguments with my wife, not many um than with you guys uh i it's been really nice thank you <laughs> it's an odd metric that you use but i appreciate actually, it actually can i rewind and say that again can i say something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well i guess it's a it's a you know it's it's you only we've got to know each other pretty quickly mm -hmm. uh from making this and uh it's it's been a really nice experience it's been lovely and i think and you know locked away in our houses phoning these extraordinary people who've done such impressive things and continue to do such hard, dangerous, important work has been like a lifeline mm. to me. Me um, too. Uh, in the lockdown. Yeah. Um, it's been really life-affirming, which I, I, I mean, I wasn't not expecting it to be life-affirming to make this podcast, but I didn't realise it would, it would mean this much and it would feel... I month. didn't think it would be so vital because obviously we started before lockdown, just before lockdown. And, you know, it has become something of a lifeline to me because I don't know what condition I would be in without having done it. And I also think the medium of podcasting, which was kind of relatively new to me, 
is just such mm. a kind of amazing medium and a huge thank you to everybody who sent us a note on social media just saying yeah. that they like it and they like what we're doing you i can't tell you how much that means and it's like it felt like we had a community when none of us That's had it. seen anyone <laughs> and it stopped me from feeling very very disembodied so i want to just say a huge thank you for that uh, and i get i guess another i mean another really lovely thing about podcasting is that it's different from you know from my experience of making films and i'm sure lucy for presenting and bit and journalism is is that we we can just kind of get out the way and let other people share their stories mm -hmm. um and and so weirdly presenting a podcast is mostly about listening uh, uh which i hadn't really realized until we did this um, it's definitely so, been a learning uh, curve yes and so <laughs> and so uh we'd like to end uh, with something really special that brings all of those things together, this sense of community uh, and op opportunities to listen um, and opportunities to help each other. Um, one of our listeners uh, got in touch a few weeks ago. Uh, he's called Akshat Rathi, and he uh, has been collecting essays from young people uh, around the world, uh, who uh, young people who are activists or who work in nature and climate protection and gathering to them together in this really beautiful book um, called United We Are Unstoppable. Yes, it's an amazing book and the subtitle is 60 Inspiring Young People Saving the World. I mean, it's um, it's just beautiful. We devoured these. Akshat sent, sent us some copies and it's a fantastic book. It's out this week. Get it. Support these guys and learn from what they've got to say. So we can't play all of the essays. Uh, so to begin with, we're going to give you a snapshot from around the world uh, of a few of them. Uh, and then we will play at full length, they're each a, a few minutes long, some of these essays. Hi, I'm Vivian Work and I am 22 years old. I live at Port-au-Prince which is a town in Haiti. Right now, I don't live at home because of the armed men who took possession of my neighborhood. I had to leave my house. I live in a ghetto. When it rains, the streets are often flooded, and sometimes water enters our arms. We are trying to survive, but if nothing changed in the next few years and if climate targets are not met, it is very likely that Haiti will disappear under the water or be destroyed by disasters. My future is in danger. Hi, I'm Nasreen Saeed and I'm 27 years old. I live in Orange County, California. Right now, I'm at John Glenn International Airport in Ohio, waiting to catch my flight to Washington, DC. I decided to arrive early due to COVID screening, but surprisingly, there was no screening. Knowing that I come from a fragile and underdeveloped state, that I was born in a refugee camp during the height of Taliban rule, and I was the first woman in my family and village to attend university has been a source of motivation for me and inspires everything I do. I'm a dual citizen, Afghan American. 
Climate change rarely gets mentioned in the context of Afghanistan. The country has witnessed severe droughts, water and land disputes are a cause of concern. Scientists predict a decrease in rainfall and a rise in average temperatures in the coming years. Now I live in California and climate change plays a big role in our lives, especially with the growing number of wildfires and recurrent droughts. I'm worried that in the coming years, I may have to evacuate my home because of the fires. Hi, my name is Anya Sastry and I am 18 years old. I am from Barrington, a town in Illinois. I first got involved with activism following the 2016 U.S. presidential election. That's because Donald Trump, the candidate who had just been elected to the highest office in the country, went against everything I believed in. The amount of emotional and mental pressure us youth activists put ourselves under is incredible. Every day, I balance a rigorous academic course load, intensive extracurriculars, college applications, and relationships with family and friends just like every other student. On top of that, I make time for hours-long conference calls, press interviews, team meetings, grassroots campaigns, and events and demonstrations. It is essentially like adding a full-time job into the mix. And what is challenging about this quote-unquote job is that it deals with some of the most pressing issues that society is facing. To put it quite simply, we are young kids devoting so much of ourselves, our emotional well-being, and our mental capacities to combating societal issues and creating solutions in order to make our world a better place. Hi, my name is Teresa Rose Sebastian and I am 16 years old. I'm originally from Kerala, India, but I live right now in a city called Cork in Ireland. I'm sitting right now in front of my garden as I enjoy the bright blue sky and the shining sun, celebrating some good weather finally, as us here in Ireland do not get this a lot. In August of 2018, I had travelled to my native country of India for my cousin's wedding. And going back home is one of my favourite things to do, as it is my only chance to see my extended family. But in that month, the state of Kerala was hit by very heavy rainfall. This caused extreme floods in many towns across Kerala and had resulted in the deaths of more than 400 people. My family and I were stuck in these floods. Our town, Pala, was badly affected. Outside our apartment, the water was up to my neck. My brother had to swim through the apartment complex to get to town. But we were considered to be the lucky ones. Other towns were completely submerged. Houses were destroyed and people were stuck on the top of their roofs, screaming for shelter and safety. We were fortunate to find some way to travel to the airport and get on a flight back home. Once I reached Cork, I realised that it is a huge privilege to be able to come back to Ireland and not have to start life completely afresh. As many in Kerala had to rebuild their homes and those who could not afford to do so were left homeless. Some had to attend the funerals of loved ones who had died in this disaster. And this privilege made me realize that I can't just sit back and wait for this to happen again. I am protesting against lack of action, the ignorance of reality, and the greed of profit-crazy companies. Our society has progressed to the point where a piece of printed paper is more important than the lives of thousands today and millions tomorrow. The climate crisis will continue to get worse and it will affect everyone. This is not an issue that you hear only in developing countries. It is happening everywhere, from France to Angola and from Pennsylvania to India. I have had to miss school a few times for strikes and climate conferences. I love my school, but this is something I've had to sacrifice to help make a change and get my voice heard. 
It is quite tough, though, coming back and having to catch up on everything yourself. When we strike from school, we are doing this out of necessity and not out of a desire to bunk from class. I aspire to become a lawyer in the future, and therefore my education is very important to me. A lot of people tend to brush me off because of my age. They tell me that I am not mature enough to do something about climate change or even make a difference. But I use this as more reason to make sure that my voice is heard. My age also hinders me in terms of attending conferences abroad. I try to the best of my ability to travel sustainably and not take aeroplanes. But I do live on an island and only those aged 18 or older can travel alone on a ferry. My parents also worry about me travelling alone to these conferences, although they have been very supportive of me despite their concerns. They have had to take huge leaps of faith when it comes to my activism. Because Ireland is a country with a small population, people consider that we can play no part in fighting the climate crisis. But that's not true. I would like Ireland to become a pioneer, showing other countries how to achieve these climate goals. At one of the strikes, I was accompanied by boys and girls who hadn't even turned 10. It struck me that these kids are also scared. And just like me, they are scared for their futures. They marched with us, carrying a sign that said, I want a future. And after the speeches, some of them started crying. It made me realize that I cannot keep fighting just for me. I am now determined to protest for everyone's futures, for my future children and for future generations. I will keep protesting because I know that we still have time to fix this. Hello, my name is Karel Miranda and I'm 27 years old. I live in Chiriqui, which is a province in Panama. Right now I'm in my garden and it is a sunny day. I can even feel a cool tropical breeze. I grew up in a rural place surrounded by beautiful nature. Panama is a tropical country with great biodiversity of both flora and fauna. But my country is also highly vulnerable to climate change because Panama has two coasts, one on the Atlantic side and the other on the Pacific side. The rising sea levels are affecting coastal communities, especially the Guna communities on the islands of San Blas, who are being forced to leave. Our economy highly depends on the Panama Canal, which connects ships transiting between the two oceans. The canal relies in the water levels of two main lakes, the Alajuela and Gatun, which feed it. However, climate change is affecting rainfall patterns and sometimes it lowers the water levels of these lakes, threatening the safe transit of ships through the canal. The effects of climate change are increasing. The temperature rise in recent years has limited what I can do at certain times of the day. In the future, I might not be able to leave the house in the daytime to do regular activities because it could be too hot and there might also be food and water shortages. I'm afraid of such a future. I've watched how the place I grew up in has changed beyond recognition over the years because of bad agricultural practices, deforestation, and environmental pollution. But I don't need to tell you what's going on. Just look around you and see how everything is changing, how weather patterns are changing, how nature is changing. When I learned about climate change, 
was in college. I was shocked that nobody was doing anything about it. In Panama, few young people really care about climate change. So the biggest challenge is to decrease the lack of commitment from younger people in vulnerable communities like mine. My campaign is aimed at making changes to the way we live, consume, and discard. I'm also campaigning for local, regional, and world leaders to stop harming the environment in the name of economic benefits. I, alongside a group of 34 young people, formed the Youth Network Against Climate Change in Panama. I believe that the most effective way to raise awareness among young people in Panama is to mix environmental education with climate action and mitigation activities. The goal is to show them that they can be a part of the solution and that they can bring awareness to other young people on social media and in social gatherings. My mother supports me in this movement. She has even changed her lifestyle because she's more aware of what's going on. And I'm really happy about it. <laughs> Participating in the 2020 UN Youth Climate Summit was a wonderful experience. I learned about what young people in other countries do, and I understood the role of communication and technology in mobilizing for climate action. At this important event, they did not only propose solutions, learned about negotiations and discuss problems, they also made their voices heard and demanded concrete solutions from world leaders. Those young people who at such a young age are aware that humanity is facing its worst ever crisis and who change their lifestyles and take to the streets are my inspiration. But a grassroots approach cannot solve the problem on its own. It is necessary for governments to commit to creating new and stricter environmental policies and to commit to enforcing existing national and international environmental policies. Let's be the generation that saved the planet, not the one that ended up destroying it. Hi, my name is Gilberto Mauricio. I live in The Hague, which is a city in the south of Holland, the Netherlands. Right now, I'm in my studio apartment with a glass, or I would say a mug, of ginger lemon tea next to me. And I'm just sitting here enjoying the overcast as I look outside of the window. But that's okay. Um, it's, it's, it's still great weather. It's not too cold. It's not too warm. So it is perfect. I was born on an island called Curaçao in the middle of the Caribbean, right in front of Venezuela next to Aruba. Sunny skies and blue water were definitely a part of my childhood. But so was a polluting refinery which could be found in the middle of Curaçao's harbor. I remember that my high school would sometimes be shut down because the wind had changed directions and it would have brought toxic chemicals from the refinery towards us. That was not the case with all of the other schools that were downwind from the refinery though. There, some students breathed those noxious fumes daily. While I always understood the harms of toxic pollution, until recently I always took a stable climate for granted. 
the temperature in the tropics was the same all year round, which made me forget about seasons, right? But now I know that climate change is degrading Curacao's beautiful coral reefs and affecting our coasts. Those reefs were once protective barriers against storms. Climate change is also affecting fisheries, which form a key part of Curacao's economy. Curacao is a dry, semi-arid island. Under most scenarios, climate change will make life worse for my people. More droughts, less rain, and more heat. As the sea level rises, Curacao runs the risk of flooding, and the island will become less habitable. Poverty and food insecurity will increase, and people will be displaced. I have understood that climate change is symptomatic of a bigger issue. It is really about our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the world around us. In that sense, all injustices are interconnected. When we look through history and we see many different examples of crises, injustice, and oppression, we can also see the similarities between them. I started working on climate change because it is also connected to fighting for an inclusive society, fighting for economic justice, and for the way that we treat people, we need to be more compassionate. We need to be more empathetic. People in Curacao need to know that climate change isn't something that is just happening abroad. It is highly relevant to us. We need to be honest about how we contribute to climate change. You know, our local refinery is one of the most polluting refineries in the world. Until recently, we were one of the highest per capita carbon emitters in the whole world. It's crazy. We can and must do better. Curacao has the potential to be an example for how small island development states can lead on climate action. We need to start innovating our systems and understanding that change comes with discomfort. At the same time, we must do all in our power to ensure a just transition for those who are most vulnerable. We must provide them with the power and opportunity to create a life that is unharmed by unjust fossil fuel operations which have been poisoning them in the name of financial stability and economic independence. And it's going to be hard sometimes, you know, it's going to be challenging. But we cannot give up and we need to understand that the time is right to do what is right. We can do it. We will do it. We must do it. And we will win. So thanks so much for joining us uh, for this series, this first series of So Hot Right Now. It's been a joy to make it and so rewarding for us to hear from you and feel like this is helping and putting a personal and human side to talking about nature and climate. We have been so honored to speak to so many inspiring and trailblazing humans and to hear from so many more. Um, thank you. I can't thank enough everybody who has listened and contributed. You don't know what a huge difference it has made. And uh, thank you so much for Picture Zero, uh, who we told about this, this uh, weird idea months and months ago and Fergus Haycock there said brilliant let's do it thanks to Sony fourth floor who also said brilliant yeah, let's do it to uh, Cassandra Gracie who is just so 
enthusiastic about stuff like this and we went to her to talk to mm -hmm. her about this she's australian after the um after the wildfires in australia at the start of the year and she was just like i want to do something we need to do this so thank you and uh thank you most of all to natalie jameson who are incredibly incredible and very patient producer who has listened to all the stuff that you've never had to listen to as Lucy and I burble on endlessly about irrelevant nonsense. You owe her. Um, you owe her big as time. As do we. Yeah, yeah Natalie, thank um, you. You've been amazing. You're such we. a lovely, lovely human to work with and you um, are so talented. So thank you. Natalie, what is the name of your podcast? Best Sellers. So if you like uh, this, actually, I don't know. No, Is it very different? This one. <laughs> if you want something much better, uh, where Natalie has full control, uh, listen to her podcast, Bestsellers. Oh, and also, wait, who else do we need to thank? There must um, be, oh, Chris Ketley for the music. We love the music. Oh, such good music. It makes yeah. us feel like, it makes me feel like I'm in succession succession <laughs> yeah but none of the characters in succession because they're all so horrible um, yeah it makes me feel like a media mogul thank you very much everybody um and we'll, should we sign off with my mum's goodbye well we haven't we've also got our own slogan now oh yes stay local stay local oh wait doing yeah. do it together but i haven't hang on i need Three. to read it so i haven't got my camera you for, you've forgotten what I it is i can't remember it <laughs> okay Three, two, one. Stay local. Stay local. <laughs> stay grassroots. Stay local. Oh, we gotta say stay local. We already did it. Okay. <laughs> Three, two, oh one. Stay, stay local. Stay grassroots. Stay grassroots. Stay cool. cool. It, when you say it like that, it sounds like you've got a dog called Grassroots. Stay grassroots. Stay grassroots. Stay grassroots. But our real sign off is saying bye in Tom's mum's voice. This is in the style of uh, Caroline Mustill. Uh, bye! Bye! <laughs> <laughs>